Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to James Garrison, author of Reconsidering the Life of Power, Ritual, Body, and Art in Critical Theory and Chinese Philosophy, published in 2021 by SUNY Press. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, James. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Malcolm. Yeah, thanks for, for, for joining us. So your book focuses on, as the title says, Chinese philosophy and the broadly continental tradition of philosophy. So um, before we get into the details, can you tell us your book's thesis in kind of a nutshell and why you thought it was important to write? Yeah. Um, oh, I'm not sure if I can uh, uh, get it into a nutshell, but I'll try <laughs> best here. Um, so very simply, on the continental critical theory side of things, we have thinkers like Judith Butler and Michel Foucault, who variously examine the contemporary condition of the subject of, of the person in society as um, being uh, bodily, as being um, discursive, so being called into a certain mode of existence uh, through how we're addressed. Um, and, and throughout the everyday, uh, and being ritually impelled, where our uh, various identities, be it they as um, black woman, professor, police officer, uh, whatsoever, um, uh, and our forms of address hail us into a kind of performative script, uh, living out this performative script. And uh, whereas this is dealt with in uh, often uh, pejorative terms in this uh, in the critical theory tradition, I want to look at resources from other traditions that uh, that that have similar precepts uh, and uh, that that, that um, maybe been working on this notion of ritual a lot longer and, and dealing with. Uh, conceptual forks in the road um, for, for uh, you know, a couple of millennia that the critical theorists are only now kind of dealing with. So uh, here I'm turning to the Confucian tradition, uh, both old and new uh, classical thinkers going back to say 400 BCE or so, all the way up to the contemporary um, the Confucian theorists that are maybe uh, inflecting um, Marxism and uh, and uh, other Western sources into the mix. Uh, and uh, looking at um, resources uh, that one might call aesthetic in nature, looking at uh, the self-cultivation uh, um, uh, potential with, uh, with ritual um, and, and uh, primarily focusing on Confucianism, uh, but also anticipating, and I have to, to tackle this in future works, uh, critiques from other East Asian traditions uh, um, concerning this topic of ritual that we get from, say, Taoism and Buddhism. Right. So that that's a, I'd say, a very good nutshell there, and we'll be able to unpack a lot of the the different aspects that you just mentioned as we go on. But let's take a, a second just to ask you how you came to be interested in the topics in this book and uh, Chinese philosophy, continental philosophy in particular. Well, it's rather roundabout. Uh, I, uh, I I did philosophy as an undergraduate student, and I studied German at the time. I had been working in IT uh, just to kind of support myself while uh, being a student, and um, had kind of um, 
floated into grad school. I, I, that might mm -hmm. not be the right term, but but um, I, I had kind of thought I might be doing an IT sort of career, and um, that just didn't quite take. Mm -hmm. And I'd always had uh, an interest in global philosophy and intercultural philosophy. So I directed myself to uh, what I think is, is probably the uh, at least one of the preeminent institutions for this, the University of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I'd actually thought uh, that I would take uh, Indian philosophy courses when, when uh, starting there, that I uh, was my background in, uh, in IT and in programming and in logics and, and whatnot, that, uh, you know, like looking at Nyaya number theory and whatnot would be interesting. Um, it just so happened that my first semester there, there just weren't any such classes like that. Um, available, but there were classes in Chinese philosophy. So I fell into the orbit of, uh, of Roger Ames, the uh, major uh, translator and interpreter uh, of the uh, Chinese tradition, um, an uh, absolute role model to me. And uh, from there, uh, from falling in, into his orbit, um, I ended up taking classes in the language, I ended up living in China for a while, um, teaching at the China University of Geosciences, and then eventually through a confluence of circumstances uh, going to finish my PhD at a little school called the University of Vienna and uh, then wandering around a little bit from there uh, yeah. to, uh, um, and to my current position uh, as a tenure track assistant professor at Baldwin Wallace University uh, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Great. So starting in Hawaii and winding up in Europe and then coming back back to the, the States in Ohio. Yeah, so, and more, oh, mm -hmm. sorry. No, uh, please. I, no, to, to answer your question, perhaps on a more conceptual level rather than just sort of my CV, mm -hmm. um, it would really be through um, Professor Ames's influence and also that of uh, Henry Rosemont, uh, recently uh, departed, um, and, and uh, Professor Elliot Deutsch uh, mm -hmm. at, at the University of Hawaii that uh, really led me to... Um, this sort of notion of, of aesthetics as first philosophy rather than mm -hmm. you know, the classical Aristotelian conceit of metaphysics as first philosophy, but where our, uh, but where aesthetics here is meant in the sort of classical sense of aesthesis, of uh, sensitivity, of receptivity, um, and, and kind of in the sense of, of being in the world. And, that's, and the way that um, Hannah Arendt in particular is going to unpack this in terms of our vulnerability of, of mm -hmm. simply being there. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, what I see happening within a number of self-cultivation traditions in East Asia, and articulated rather powerfully within Confucianism, is that the basics of being there um, can uh, be refined. That these are techniques that how we uh, sort of occupy space and time, um, social space-time, can um, be graceful. Um, mm -hmm. with the right sort of ritual attention uh, and not necessarily escaping uh, the kind of social determinism that's laid out by thinkers like Foucault or uh, and, and Butler, but uh, maybe giving an alternative to the kind of grim outcomes that we get mm -hmm. with uh, the critical theorists. Gotcha. Yeah. And so we, uh, we could talk about that uh, again in next couple of questions I have for you is in particular about Judith Butler uh, and, and so on. But um, one thing I just wanted to ask, if I may, and when we're thinking about the autobiographical aspect of it, is I, I'm wondering if, if your book has some sort of autobiographical 
resonances. There's there's a one little passage that caught my eye, especially given some of what I know about the rest of your work that you're talking about uh, subjects sort of rage against uh, the instability of their uh, legitimacy in society, and in particular for a black person who takes up a PhD expecting recognition, mm-hmm. but then experiences, in in your words here, the sad, paltry, ever-vanishing reality of still always being suspiciously and pejoratively black. So I guess I have kind of two questions here. The, the book itself isn't explicitly about race and its embodiment, but do you see connections between this book's arguments and the particular experiences of black subjects? And do you think about this book as as coming out of any kind of autobiographical uh, experiences? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that I make that remark in the context of uh, the joke by Malcolm X. Uh, yes, you know, what do you call a black man with a PhD? You call him the mm word. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a word that I, I suppose I can say, but I eh, won't say it here. In any case, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I can answer this question on two levels, perhaps. I would say, firstly, that um, there's an autobiographical component to the book insofar as I have this, you know, rather strange CV with, uh, you know, my undergraduate time in Washington State, going to University of Hawaii for my intercultural comparative philosophy education, uh, time in China, um, then five years in in Vienna. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a lot of uh, the... Uh, sort of continental milieu and the yeah. uh, a- Asian milieu. Like, that's that's me. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I've been living, and those are the languages that I speak. And uh, so, so, so there's that. But uh, more to the point with regard to race. So I've I don't want to, to say that I'm um, a chapter and verse Butlerian, but it feels mm-hmm. like that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, I. I find Butler's approach attractive um, because it poses a kind of worst case scenario for the subject. Um, Mm -hmm. It uh, presumes very little about uh, any sort of uh, transcendental resources for freedom, any sort of uh, outside to uh, the power relations that constitute the subject, uh, thereby making the question of liberation something of a paradox. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, really kind of, taking the difficulty of uh, of going over and above uh, um, those those formative ritual influences uh, and you know the, the, and not um, allowing for you know spontaneity uh, here. And, and where that that rigor I think is rather attractive now mm-hmm. um, it, this is a framework that um, Butler's framework and then I, I, then my sort of asterisk to it that yeah there might be this other way of considering ritual that's still mm-hmm. consistent with the, this this rigor uh, but that allows for some sort of self-cultivation self-development and a little mm-hmm. bit of uh, degree of you know not spontaneous freedom uh, but but you know something uh, mm-hmm. um, I have a, another book project uh, do you mind if I, I plug another thing? Please, please. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, this is coming out uh, hopefully in the next year. Uh, it's under contract uh, with uh, with Paul Gray McMillan, mm-hmm. um, and it's called Black Bodies That Matter. Mm-hmm. So one part Judith Butler's Bodies That Matter, which mm-hmm. is um, her taking a, a psychoanalytic 
um, exa examination of the politics of mourning and particularly vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, uh, queer issues. This is happening mm -hmm. in the shadow of, uh, say, of, of, uh, and she's publishing this in 1993. So the AIDS crisis right. is uh, really uh, quite uh, visible and where she's looking at things like the, uh, the national AIDS quilt as a way of arriving possibly at successful mourning, which acknowledges the reality of loss, uh, rather than melancholy, which uh, failing to acknowledge the reality of loss um, keeps the lost object around as you know, kind of a ghost tormenting the self. And this is basically mm -hmm. the origin of superego. And where um, I'm looking at um, the uh, the politics of mourning, um, generally and kind of extending Butler's framework, but where I'm also making sort of two more, well, maybe three more substantive points, and I'm still working out the details, but mm -hmm. um, th those three major points being that, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you have um, these uh, feminist theorists, uh, as it turns out, white feminist theorists like um, Hannah Arendt and Adriana Cavarero and Judith Butler, who all variously turn it, uh, give attention to um, how vulnerability on the scene is constitutive of being. So where mm -hmm. for, for Hannah Arendt, um, as political beings, um, uh, appearance is equivalent with being. Uh, Stein and, and Zine are, mm -hmm. are uh, drawn into equivalence and that to appear on the scene as this sort of you know, very fundamental uh, 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 manner the matter of being mm -hmm. and um what i want to maintain uh drawing on bell hooks um the the uh, um, black feminist uh, philosopher uh is that um it, it's um both vulnerability on the scene that is constitutive of being but also um the appearance of invulnerability in the other so going back to a sort of hegelian uh, conceit here uh, with the, that sort of master-slave encounter, which is uh, core to, to Butler's own analysis, but um, looking at how um, the presumption that the other is invulnerable and how this plays out um, for Black experience, particularly Black female experience, with the uh, presumption of physical invulnerability and psychic invulnerability, mm -hmm. uh, pile on the physical trauma and the mental trauma, and mm -hmm. that's what we do, we take it. Mm -hmm. um, where this needs to be added to the story for all subjects, but um, the, the vulnerability and invulnerability together as a dyad make sense more than just um, uh, vulnerability, but yeah. that for particular subjects where the balance is maybe you know, uh, yeah. somewhat more skewed. Uh, so that's the one point of it. The second point um, that I'm looking at in this Black Bodies of Matter book is looking at um, uh, artistry. So I, I, I Again, focusing on art uh, and the aesthetic and, um, and self-development, self-cultivation, but um, looking at how um, how uh, being constituted by trauma makes it um, difficult, if not impossible, to give an account of one's own existence to, to fill in the narrative of how one came to be. Uh, this is a, a major feature of, of Butler's giving an account of oneself and, and her mm -hmm. reading of, of Hannah Arendt and uh, where uh, artistry and fiction, uh, it could be called lying, but I mean, artifice, where you're having to fill in the gaps as a response. 
And uh, so I'm uh, looking to, uh, this chapter will be called Black Girl Magical Realism. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be looking at uh, sources like Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, amongst others. Uh, and uh, I, I'm also trying to get into more uh, Reconstruction era literature here too, mm-hmm. uh, particularly like the, the sort of hidden voices. And um, looking at um, how um, trauma is externalized um, in ways that defy A leads to B leads to C kind of narratives, but how mm-hmm. it's still true nonetheless. Um, so uh, there's that feature. And then the final thing that I'm looking at, and this is something I've just kind of developed uh, recently in the, the aftermath of a little bit of personal loss, uh, mm-hmm. a bad breakup, but um, a, um, the idea that um, for successful mourning as opposed to melancholy, um, that um, with successful mourning, we have the acknowledgement of loss, uh, the ability to, um, to to acknowledge that the lost object is truly in the ground and no longer with us. And um, looking at this, it, um, and it's kind of a weird source of analysis, but looking at this in, in light of uh, consesthetics and mm-hmm. making the claim that um, that if mourning takes place, if it's successful grieving, it is by definition beautiful um, mm-hmm. in the sense of disinterested interest, uh, disinterested in interest in the continued existence of the object. I think Kant uses almost those exact language, that, that exact mm-hmm. terminology. And um, from there, looking at Kant's notion of the sublime and uh, one common feature, bringing back to your original question with Butler. So one common feature you get with a critical theorist with um, Foucault, with Althusser, with Butler, is this um, secularization of, uh, of more theological models of power. So mm-hmm. for Foucault, it's the all-seeing eye of the panopticon. For mm-hmm. Althusser, it is uh, interpolation being hailed into being, so drawing on the Catholic notion of vocation mm-hmm. uh, and, and calling, and um, with Butler kind of mishmashing that uh, all together. And uh, what I'm looking at as sort of a resolution is uh, Kant's sublime and um, and particularly his language. I need to pull up my notes on this, but um, on um, being able to uh, being um, aware and of how small one is in the face of power, but being comfortable uh, with power nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to go out safe with a feeling of safety and where. Uh, absent proper mourning um, and being in the midst of melancholy, absent uh, that uh, moment of beauty and mourning, it's impossible to reach the sublime that's uh, just literally walking through uh, society in the everyday. Yeah, and so what you've just mentioned there, getting getting back to the um, the, and thank you for that. One of my last questions is is typically what you're working on now. So we've we've gotten that, which is great, uh, and it. Uh, I think it fits with what what you're working on in this book. Um, the idea of ritual technique is big in Chinese philosophy and is an important part of your book. Um, so let let me dive into a question I had uh, that's related to that in the fifth chapter. One of your metaphors in the book is that of a, a tuber or a rhizome that doesn't have a sort of a, a central starting point. So I feel okay jumping jumping ahead a little bit here. Um, you talk about in uh, the fifth chapter the importance of um, artwork that helps in rethinking the very notions of loss, absence, and permanence. 
And you connect this to the thought of Shunza in, uh, in particular, but Kant plays a role in your book as well. Uh, let's just kind of start here, um, and then we can work our way around through some of the other themes. What's so important about ritual technique in uh, Chinese, rather Confuci- Confucian philosophy in particular, and how do you understand that as helping human beings and kind of cope with their position in society? B- big question, but let's see if we can start untangling some of this. Okay. And to answer this, I'm just going to kind of go to maybe um, a, a kind of basic introduction uh, yes, to, to Confucianism. So, Thank you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that are, are uh, connoisseurs of the tradition, this might be a little bit too simplistic. So, but in any case, um, so with Confucianism, we have this body of thought that's emerging roughly the same time as uh, Platonic thought in ancient Greece. Uh, and this is something that Carl Jaspers talks about in his whole axial age conceit. But um, where... Uh, in, in a very real way, Confucianism, even if it's not self-consciously practiced by um, by people throughout East Asia, it supplies so much of the still active vocabulary for uh, self, society, family, uh, obligation, uh, etc. So, um, in particular, what what Confucius um, does, um, he's not um, in his own lifetime successful as a philosopher. I mean, we, we, we seldom are, right? If, we have, if we're doing this at all well, we get our plaudits uh, uh, well after death. And this is true of him too. So he was basically a wandering advisor in the warring states period uh, of, of China before uh, China um, organized as, as, a, as a single polity um, or a single political unit. And uh, so there was this uh, uh, sort of rampant war, warlordism and you would have the smart literate uh people that would have you know maybe some sort of scientific uh ish background or some sort of military background or just you know literate people who would offer their wares as kind of traveling advisors to these warlord courts and this was confucius in his time not particularly successful a minor official at best uh, but um his sayings were collected uh, by, um, by, by a number of students, and it's these, uh, these sayings that became codified, um, written down, and then passed on uh, in a standardized form that um, come down to us as the Analects, this te- uh, uh, the, the sayings of Confucius. And um, it's kind of a nonlinear text. Um, it's, a, it's a, again, a bunch of aphorisms. Um, and you know, there are many hands at work in the actual codification of it, but there's the, the, the big theme that comes out is that, um, that, that being a, a person is, um, is about maximizing relations. This is what my professor Roger Ames would say mm-hmm. that, um, a person is what they are because of our relationships. We are constituted through and through by relations. So this is going to stand in contrast to say like a a soul ontology, where you have an essential soul uh, um, upon which experience and relationships then accrue. Uh, Here, the idea is that uh, we are what we are through our relations and to be better people, we need to maximize our relations. 
we do this by uh, paying attention to our ritual interactions with other people, um, primarily family. Because, uh, mm-hmm. Those are our, the most intimate relationships and most constitutive of what we are. So uh, Confucianism is going to emphasize um, uh, certain um, norms for parent-child interaction, uh, emphasizing what might be called filial piety or you know, a very intense sort of family loyalty. Um, there's going to be, uh, and, and where that's also going to expand out to the notion of, of the state um, and, and uh, this sort of paternal ruler um, and, and uh, their relationship to the citizen. But um, what, what we see this articulated in, um, for me, most powerfully, is a passage. It's uh, Analect's passage uh, 1211. And um, it, it, this is called the rectification of names. Mm-hmm. Um, is this uh, familiar to, to you, Malcolm, mm-hmm. personally? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So well, I'll, I'll uh, for, for the audience here. That, um, yeah, please. For, the, for the the, okay. So the, the, uh, the rectification of names is uh, simply this. Um, it's uh, something it, in Chinese. It's something like Wang Wang Gui Gui Fu Fu The ruler must rule. The minister must act as minister. The father must act as father, and the son must act as son. And without these power relationships, um, without um, these. Uh, 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 Sort of, uh, and then these ritualized interactions that, that anchor those, those relationships, uh, that it's impossible to engage in the basic task of governing. That people don't uh, stay in their lane and fulfill their social and professional obligations. So that um, this, this, uh, so that the social roles and, in particular, living up to one's name, um, living up to one's role. That this is what it means to be good. Um, that it's not simply enough to uh, to be a biological sperm donor, but one must actively act as father um, in order to maintain social harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, um, there's a certain kind of social conservatism to it, mm-hmm. um, to that aspect. But um, and this has certainly um, attracted a great deal of, of uh, attention within the Confucian tradition and without. Um, this would be one of the re- main reasons why uh, the uh, the, uh, the the Maoist uh, uh, reactionaries uh, were were extremely anti-Confucian back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this um, actually really accords fairly well with uh, what I think Butler and Foucault are laying out for uh, this this idea that uh, power relations are thoroughly determinative of the self, um, and there's no um, soul underlying. Uh, the subject, but rather that we are constituted all the way through power relations. And if we're going to reckon with the subject's place in society, uh, that needs to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. So can you give an example that might help flesh out this, excuse me, this idea in particular when it comes to funerary rites? Because this is Uh, an important aspect in Confucian thought more broadly. And of course, we'll see in in Shunzi in particular. uh, And music and art are involved here too. So uh, I I think for modern people, the idea of ritual is maybe not um, as clear as for these thinkers. So if you can help us with that. Well, I, I can, but um, I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm also going to pivot away to an anti-answer, if you don't mind, okay. as, as, as a bedeviling philosopher. Uh, so, 
Um, yeah, as you say, uh, funerary rites are quite important within the Confucian tradition. Um, for uh, people that, that have maybe just a sort of passing familiarity with East Asian cultures, you may be aware that, that ancestor worship is a fairly um, common practice uh, that, that uh, like, say, small shrine, small uh, votive offerings to um, departed relatives, uh, even a few generations back. Um, this is a, a rather common uh, a practice. And um, there's um, very much this idea that um, that um, we owe for our existence, that, that, that owing our parents, uh, not just for our biological existence, but for, again, um, making us who we are, for giving us uh, bearing and direction, uh, for um, uh, ed- educating us, um, uh, not just didactically, but, but um, in terms of uh, a kind of social choreography, how we navigate the world, that um, this uh, doesn't go away, uh, even mm-hmm. in death. Um, and that, uh, there's really broadly speaking, um, if we look at, at Confucius's words more directly, there's going to be a chain of people stretching all the way back to, uh, these mytho historical rulers named Diao and Shun, uh, who are credited with, uh, sort of introducing, uh, written Chinese script and, um, and, and, you know, linguistic relations amongst people, um, that, that, um, that we can't be who we are without acknowledging, um, really the, the, the whole mass of society that came before, um, when this, we, when we fast forward a little bit, uh, to this, uh, contemporary Confucian philosopher named Li Ho. Uh, he's going to talk about this, um, and this might be uh, a point of connection for um, for, for uh, um, people less less familiar with, with with East Asian traditions. He's going to articulate this importance of ritual um, in and, and and historical development in terms of of, of marks and this kind of um, material dynamic. So, where um, in a very real sense. Um, when we're talking about rituals, when we're talking about uh, how people are ordered in society, particularly with labor relations, but also family relations, um, all of this, it, it, on the one hand, it's kind of like abstract and rituals are just you know a bunch of practices and gestures and behaviors. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's, it's directly material. All this stuff is uh, uh, that this is how societies uh, organize resources, distribute resources and, and survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, with, um, his sort of more contemporary reading leads to Ho, but also in the old classical Confucian, uh, uh, reading that, um, it, it's, um, going to be a, a massive web of relations, um, outstripping, uh, the the current living world mm-hmm. uh, that makes us what we are, and so uh, paying attention to the, the, the so within Confucianism, there's the, the traditional three years of mourning after uh, mm-hmm. the, the passing of a parent. Uh, this is this is how it's expressed more classically, but it fits into the Butler stuff. It fits into the, the overall scheme. 
um, in terms of um, this, um, again, acknowledgement of loss, successful acknowledgement of loss called mourning mm-hmm. or uh, unsuccessful um, acknowledgement of loss called melancholy, which mm-hmm. Butler again identifies as being that that's just how we generally live in society, but mm-hmm. by a type of uh, persistent melancholy. So <clears throat> for the three years of, of mourning at the end of those three years, then instead of a sort of a melancholy attachment to the, the, the ghost of the, the parent, there's an, uh, an acceptance of their, their genuine absence. Is that sort of in a very simplistic yeah. idea? Uh, way yeah, of putting bo- it? Bo- both their genuine absence, but, uh, but at the same time, their persisting influence. So the mm-hmm. idea that, that, an- uh, that ancestors are materially active in this world and not in the sense of like uh, miraculous intercession per se, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. more in terms of like the material effects that you know, the still being in their material wake, even though they've departed, and acknowledging both both their uh, absence and their presence. I would mm-hmm. say. Hmm. Um, so, but oh, sorry. Oh no, no, no! I was just going to say uh, uh, this might be interesting then in terms of the discussion of ghosts and uh, both uh, Shunza and Moza, uh, uh, as you as you mentioned this, but yeah. But, but to back it up a little bit, and this is where I want to give my, my anti-answer, my somewhat resistant answer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to your framing, Malcolm, uh, uh, um, would be that uh, there, there's a passage, uh, the, the, the number of which escapes me right now, but uh, where Confucius says um, in uh, talking about um, ritual, um, do you think I'm just talking about uh, weddings and funerals and mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. music? Do you think I'm just talking about bells and drums? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, by that, I mean uh, to connect this. Uh, um, so uh, Butler has this this line where um, she's drawing on Freud, and wh- where loss, the losses that constitute us as a person, aren't just you know losing your mom, losing your you know whatever, but it's the the slights and disappointments and insults of the everyday um, that. Uh, for Butler, it's going to be within uh, her earlier, uh, more queer theoretical work. It's going to be um, call, being called into existence as a, a cis hetero male, and in so doing, uh, losing the possibility for certain attachments, certain kinds of intimacies uh, with other men, and um, losing even the fact of that loss, where that loss goes unacknowledged in the mm-hmm. constitution of, of, of being sort of an everyday dude. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so. Um, it, it's um, going to be a, um, really the, the, the accrual of a, uh, of you know thousands of subtle interactions. I, I mean, it's, I guess the language of uh, what nowadays is called microaggression. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm uh, talking through this with my students, um, I, I talk about how when we pass through campus, um, they might uh, acknowledge me, uh, call me professor, you know, if, if mm-hmm. they came to acknowledge me at all, that's a whole other thing. Um, but if, if, if their heads aren't in their devices, but, um, you know, we might pass each other, uh, they would acknowledge me as, uh, as professor. Um, and hopefully I would remember their name and acknowledge them by their first name, but there'd be mm-hmm. a, a somewhat, a, something with power disparity and that recognition there. Um, it's, you know, not like, uh, it's, it's not like a major, uh, loss, loss, but that, that there's a slighting of, of, of the other, just in terms of the disparity. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if it's two students that are passing each other, and again, I'm defaulting to like two male kind of mm-hmm. dude students, 
but they'll opt in. If they are acknowledging each other, it'll be with the uh, the uh, head nod, uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, um, mm-hmm. sometimes it will be uh, one party uh, giving the hey head nod and another party you know, not uh, returning that acknowledgement mm-hmm. and in the process sliding that other person mm-hmm. um, without that, you know, kind of throwing them shade. Uh, but it, it, it's, um, I, I think, to get the full depth and breadth of what um, Butler, Foucault, and the psychoanalytic side of things are, are after, it, it's really looking at at loss um, in um, and, and looking at loss, looking at ritual, um, looking at really all of these uh, these quantities that uh, they're being thrown around in. Um, extremely diffuse and subtle ways that also mm-hmm. end up uh, being consistent with Confucius's own remark on the subject. I see. So you're so whether that's explicit in um, uh, you're seeing that hinted at in in uh, Confucius and his his writings, and whether the psychoanalytic vantage point is is explicitly there in Shinzo, you're you're seeing that he and other Confucians have the resources to extend to that uh, sort of that concept of loss and, and ritual. And you, you mentioned, uh, Lee, uh, Zeho. um, mm-hmm. chapter four is where you talk about him a lot and you, the title is subjectality. So maybe, maybe this mm-hmm. is a good place to talk about this. So first of all, for, for folks who don't know, uh, I certainly didn't, what is subjectality? Uh, who is Lee Zeho and oh, what's yeah, going yeah. on in that chapter? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. So, um, Basically, I'm, I'm doing a lot of nutshells here, but uh, sure. um, on, on the one hand, with our critical theorists, uh, we have the term subjectivation. That's going to be the process of becoming subject, an individual person uh, being hailed into a particular mode of existence, being hailed into a set of ritual practices, that ritual script or, or several ritual scripts with our complex identities mm-hmm. uh, and where uh, we become conscious of ourselves, uh, self-consciousness is seeing oneself through the eyes of the other uh, mm-hmm. as a result of all of these, uh, these uh, interactions. So this is kind of our Foucault panopticism and mm-hmm. Butler on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to maintain that um, there's a natural fit between uh, subjectivation being this process of person making, of, of forming the person, forming the subject uh, as the self-conscious uh, uh, and often self-punishing uh, uh, member of society, mm-hmm. uh, that, that um, uh, subjectality leads a Ho's platform, this contemporary philosopher leads a Ho, uh, mm-hmm. that this is um, really fitting and, 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 and provides a, a great uh, parallel for understanding uh, how society is formed. So whereas mm-hmm. subjectivation is the micro uh, production of people, uh, subjectality is the macro production of society. And uh, in both cases, so for when we're talking about uh, person making for uh, Judith Butler, just as I mentioned before, with uh, the construction of the cis uh, straight, uh, uh, straight male identity, mm-hmm. uh, it there are certain possibilities for attaching to other men that go uh, that are lost and that are lost as losses that go mm-hmm. ungrieved and unmourned mm-hmm. and uh, where there's going to be this sort of um, so, sort of a, a, um, unconscious 
um, sort of, sort of a scene of torment playing out as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, 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 uh, Li Zihou, um, he's, um, very much interested in, uh, the same question of, so individual humans do all of this, this subjectivation in order to, in order to survive. Um, and we engage in these rituals, et cetera, et cetera. For Li Zihou, he's looking at how human beings uh, on a macro level survive and how, um, that survival requires, um, regulation of practice um, and where um, survival is, is going to be very much a ritual affair. So he's drawing on Karl Marx here, uh, the early Marx from 1844 Paris manuscripts and this notion of the humanization of nature and the naturalization of humanity, where uh, we humans inscribe ourselves on nature, chopping it up, parceling it up for our uses, but at the same time where uh, nature imprints itself on us. So say mm-hmm. growing seasons and um, how we cluster at river deltas and mm-hmm. things, things like that. And how over time and, and locales throughout the world, you get this uh, basically ritual is the pivot in the middle of this ritual are all of our practices that we take up in order to survive um, all the practices that, that develop say in the Pearl River Valley, um, you know, modern day Shanghai or that developed mm-hmm. in, um, in Paris or along the banks of the Seine or uh, what are along the, the banks of the Mediterranean, that all of these uh, ritual practices that accrue in these places um, are um, that they, they develop um, as, as part of survival, but, but um, just as um, um, material covers itself up over time, mm-hmm. uh, that, that rituals are, are quasi material and that we lose touch with the reasons why we've, um, why we've kind of slouched into certain, um, practices, um, that, uh, so this is uh, what's called sedimentation, uh, for mm-hmm. uh, and, and marks that are, our, our practices, our social practices sediment over time. That's part of, uh, survival and, and what, this means for Li Ho is that um, on a macro level, we develop a collective unconsciousness, um, uh, kind of borrowing from, from the Jungian collective consciousness idea. Mm-hmm. And um, where we have one way or another, we have uh, our, our whole society is defined by ritual practices. Now, if we as individuals uh, pay conscious attention and, and engage in ritual practice actively. So in a Chinese context, this might be engaging in say Tai Chi and um, having the context to, in, in this case, uh, with a literal walking and our actual gait and presence in society, reflecting on um, what might've been unconscious habit um, accrued you know, from a, a variety of sources while outstripping uh, the single subject's ability to recount, but uh, where um, society one way or another is going to be ritually driven and, um, and it's going to have this unconscious um, uh, uh, ritual basis and where there is the possibility for some kind of, of self-development through uh, actively consciously tapping into that. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea of the individual as a, as a world observer. Is that the terminology he uses for this? Or yeah. Or is that a different idea? 
Um, this is this is connected, yeah. Um, so this is um, actually kind of a little bit more uh, Hana Arant too. Okay. But both of them are both uh, Li Zhe and Hana Arant are explicitly drawing on Kant's aesthetics and uh, and his politics. Uh, so there's this uh, cool confluence that happens with Kant's later politics, where he's um, particularly after perpetual peace and in uh, uh, um, the uh, um, metaphysics of morals, where he uh, talks about uh, geopolitics. He talks about observing the world, uh, drawing on the language of observation um, of, of art objects, and where perpetual peace, uh, um, rather than being something real and provable, um, is m- uh, more of an ideal. Uh, uh, um, that we so we were compelled to think of, of the world and this progress towards peace, uh, but that can't be rationally demonstrated. And uh, so we're, we're, we get this alignment with his notion of beauty. And Hannah Arendt and, and Li Zeho, both in various ways, draw upon that. And I'm just kind of writing their coattails. <laughs> Good coattails to write on. <laughs> um, so let me pick up on something you were just talking about there. Uh, you were talking about Tai Chi and uh, sort of embodying in one's uh, gait and one's presence in the world. This is really important in your final chapter where you take up Richard Schusterman's work along with uh, a, a debate between Shunzi and Mungzi or Mencius in his Latinized name. And I thought this chapter was interesting. We don't have a lot of time to get into, for instance, a lot of the methodology about doing intercultural philosophy, which is the subject of sort of your your first um, part of the book. It's kind of a necessary prolegomena for anyone doing this kind of work. But I thought this chapter was an interesting illustration of your your methods because, at least on my understanding, and, and I want to hear more about this, you're looking at a contemporary thinker, Richard Schusterman, who draws on uh, Confucian ideas in Shunzi and Mencius, but your intervention seems to be that you're showing us that it's important to also be attentive to the context of where, uh, of whom Shunzi is arguing against and setting forward his ideas in terms of how we uh, sort of employ his ideas for contemporary projects. So as I understand it, you're kind of intervening in this this debate between Shunzi and Mencius on one hand and Shunzi and the Moists on another and saying we need to be attentive to the situation of these texts for how we're employing them in contemporary projects. Is that a fair characterization? And I know there's a lot going on here, but can you help us understand some of the dialectic here? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot in that chapter that, that uh, frankly, is um, fairly uh, kind of um, narrow and, and having to do it with, with uh, very specific uh, debates within um, maybe more arcane parts of Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say more broadly, uh, and as just a general trend f- uh, throughout the book, is that I'm trying to, um, a- a- again, um, taking ritual as, as central and recognizing some of the deficiencies within uh, the Western tradition that this is, I mean, yeah, you get Aristotle with habit here mm-hmm. and you get some, you know, you get some scattershot stuff, uh, but it's not explicitly thematized the way it is in the Confucian tradition. It's not one of the four cardinal virtues um, mm-hmm. as, as develops um, the four, like one of the four ritual being one of the four limbs um, basically. Um, and um in this particular chapter and in elsewhere, uh, 
there's going to be uh, just by simple uh, virtue of having worked out uh, stuff around this for the last 2,500 years or so where Confucians are going to have a leg up. So in particular here, um, this is one of the, the most famous debates within the uh, the ancient Confucian tradition between, as you say, uh, Mencius and Shunsa um, on the question of whether or not human nature is uh, good or bad and um, looking at ritual as a way of, of determining this. Uh, is our um, capability for um, de developing flourishing human societies built around ritual, is this evidence of us being good or is ritual something that has to be imposed onto this dissolute, you know, kind of ugly human nature. Mm -hmm. um, and where um, there are sort of more specific uh, ways of reading this, and I'm also drawing on that lead to Ho um, reading of, of Mencius here. Mm -hmm. um, but um, where um, Richard Schusterman in, 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 in his own work, which is about uh, this uh, uh, the, the, this notion of, of soma aesthetic self cultivation of of, of uh, self refinement through practice, where at one level or another, it's going to have to reckon with this question whether or not um, ritual is say external to the person, external to humanity, or, or, or how we might define it, and uh, or or um, if we look at this as a spontaneous thing that, that we're, we're capable of and, and mm -hmm. how we uh, how we um, reckon with that is going to um, in one way or another a shed light on um, kind of you know, like the, whether or not we're bound to kind of social determinism or if um, ritual attention can actually kind of get us out of some of mm -hmm. the dilemmas. Um, so right back to the major Butler questions. And um, so, yeah, it's leveraging this this a uh, long tradition within Chinese philosophy to answer questions that seem pretty natural for um, for critical theorists that are just kind of bumping up against uh, the, this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess uh, maybe if I can draw just a, a little bit. Um, so it struck me that uh, you you characterized some of this as a little bit like uh, just a moment ago as arcane discussions amongst the Confucian philosophers, but it seemed to me again as a as a naive reader here, uh, I've I've only just sort of taught these these thinkers in um, in translation, so so that's my level of of understanding. But it struck me that you were making um, kind of an, an important point about methodology. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here that. Um, it's important to when we're taking up ideas or uh, distinctions in, in Shinza, for instance, right. um, that we pay attention to the context in which these distinctions were made and whether Shinza was, in fact, uh, situating his argument in the context of whether human nature is good or bad in, in dialogue with Mencius or whether he's arguing with the Moists who have a very radical view uh, that, you know, we should, we shouldn't be wasting our money on uh, funeral rites and, and music where, where yeah. the one, one is a sort of a friendly ish inter, um, you know, between, between friends debate. They, they agree on, and broadly on Confucian rights and their importance. And the other is against sort of someone who's really wanting to dispense with the whole, whole edifice. And it struck me as it just, Thinking about the book that you're doing, which is um, intercultural philosophy, you're drawing a lot of different um, ways of thinking about these ideas, that there was an emphasis on the text here that was important, 
but also emphasis on the text for the purposes of addressing a problem that is facing you know, modern thinkers. And it's not necessarily just trying to resolve, as you say, arcane. Um, okay. Well, thanks. Is that, is, that fa- is that a fair characterization of what you're trying to do? Um, maybe yeah, maybe you can help a little bit with the, with the methodology, I guess, is what I'm yeah, curious. I, I suppose. I'm just, I'm just uh, maybe uh, uh, too much false modesty on, on my part. But um, no, the, the, um, I, I think that that's, that's correct. Where, um, yeah, as, as you say, like on the one hand, yeah, I'm trying to um, you know, leverage the 2,500 years of, of debates, but also where um, using um, within that actual textual context as um, so. So here, there's going um, there's the on the one hand this as you say this uh, um, interconfucian debate uh, intra-confucian debate between Mencius mm-hmm. and Shunzi, and on the other that we have this this anti-confucian anti-ritual, uh, anti-funerary right perspective from the Moists and where um, Richard Schusterman um, is, um, at least in, in uh, most of his work that I've seen, kind of more attracted to Shunsa, who uh, has the position that human nature is evil in some way and that we need ritual to be strongly imposed uh, from without, that it's basically have some sort of uh, semi-miraculous ruler that you know, for reasons, um, is able to, um, um, instruct, uh, humanity and apply pressure, um, like, uh, to, to unworked wood, as, as Shunza mm-hmm. says, and where, um, Shunza has a lot, lot, lot more to say about ritual and music than, than Mencius. So it, it kind of makes sense that, that Schusterman would go there, that there's mm-hmm. a, um, um, some really beautiful passages about uh, how, say, when uh, there's a, um, a, a, a musical performance and there's a choreography that goes on on stage and a choreography that goes on uh, in the audience and where the ranked, the ranked people take their seat at such and such a time and such and such a place. And mm-hmm. the whole thing is supposed to be sort of a, a microcosm of the choreography that goes on in society in the town square. And um, Shunza um, has a lot more to say about uh, some aesthetic concerns, but where I maintain that, yeah, um, Mencius's approach, um, and for reasons laid out by by, um, Li Zaho, that it might end up being more consistent with Schusterman's pragmatism. And if we contextualize um, this debate in terms of... um, Again, that anti-Confucian, uh, that Moist, um, anti-ritual perspective that uh, we can kind of split the difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe later uh, philosophers in the Confucian tradition who are drawing on Mencius in contrast to Shunzi would be another set of resources uh, because of their optimism about uh, human nature is is a way of sort of pushing back against some of the, as you put it, grim um, Butlerian uh, pessimism about uh, social structures and yeah. the but, human subject. But where I would qualify that and say that mm-hmm. um, with this reading, it's not uh, just a sunny optimism about human mm-hmm. nature. It's still mm-hmm. consistent with Butler um, and where, uh, so Lita Ho's reading of, of Bencius is to say that um, human beings aren't good. Um, we are good at, uh, we are good at building societies. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that it's not necessarily morally good, but we're good at the techniques mm-hmm. um, of, of appearing together as a society, as a body politic. We spontaneously mm-hmm. do that. Um, and that I think is consistent with um, this idea that one power relations are comprehensive, that how we appear is you know absolutely fundamental um, to to a you know, human being, but also um, that um, not giving us any sort of resources, not looking at ritual as um, necessarily just a get out of jail free card to mm-hmm. the inequities of society, to our social construction. Mm-hmm. Um, still recognizing the difficulties in a way consistent with Butler's sort of. Uh, as I said before, rigor. Yeah. Yeah. So because, uh, I mean, Mencius is certainly not uh, just a, an optimist who thinks that human beings are going to just sporadically, naturally always do the right thing, right? There's a there's a, an inclination uh, towards goodness in the, the famous story of the child at, at the well, but it doesn't mean you're going to naturally save the child. You, you have a, the, the sprout, but uh, as we see with the what is the story of Ox Mountain? Those sprouts can get chewed on all the way down to the to the mm-hmm. nubs till the mountain is uh, is bald. So, so yeah, I think I think that's a nice a nice. Point. Yeah, it's not necessarily a teleological like Aristotelian notion of, of seed to uh, to plant, but much mm-hmm. more about um, relationality and context, and not being given that uh, anything will develop from such and such a sprout. Right. Well, one last comment here that I wanted to draw out from your your book, picking up on this idea of the what you're calling somesthetics and the somesthetic uh, self cultivation. You you say that somesthetic self cultivation can work to unsettle prevailing power structures, even if that's not an intended aim. And I guess kind of just thinking big big picture here with what we started um, uh, talking about different ways in which. In the contemporary world, there are these um, these existing power structures, and um, the, you know your current book project that, that you're working on. Um, it, let me see if I can put this uh, succinctly. Uh, I, I, how how do you think that can work? Uh, how can this mm-hmm. kind of cultivation actually unsettle prevailing power structures? And maybe again, some specific examples to to draw out your your ideas here. Yeah, and I think I can do so uh, mostly just by parroting Richard Schusterman, um, his, his own example here. So um, I, I presume that many people in the audience have engaged in some sort of uh, ritual bodily practice, be it um, something, it could be yoga or tai chi, or it could be something just more uh, like more familiar calisthenics. Um, but in a number of disciplines, uh, you concentrate on your breathing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part of keeping time, mm-hmm. part of being aware of your level of activity, etc. Um, let's let's talk about this, and we'll, we'll talk about it in terms of yoga. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if we're engaged in, in yoga practices, is definitely a big thing. And um, what's supposed to happen um, is um, the conscious reflection on breath that takes place when you're you know, in the class and on the mat and when your teacher is, you know, giving you that, that soft, okay, pay attention to your breathing, everybody mm-hmm. and, and giving and giving you those cues. Um, it's supposed to spill over into everyday life um, and, and to say uh, noticing um, changes in breathing uh, just in, in, in more normal circumstances uh, and noticing when one is 
um, agitated or aroused um, and um, or um, you know uh, ill at ease. Um, and uh, Schusterman talks about this in terms of uh, being able to recognize one's perhaps unconscious reaction to other people. Like, say, uh, if a person uh, maybe has an aversion to uh, to the homeless uh, or something like that, that, that it might not be necessarily uh, an antagonism, but mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a common phenomenon just you know, observing city spaces where people rush past the homeless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they increase their gait. They probably increase their breath. Um, um, but where, um, just in, in small, um, moments of, of, of awareness of, of our, uh, you know, how, how we're comporting ourselves with our body that we can renew and maybe refine our, or refine, maybe renew our relationships with other people, um, be they that, that putative homeless person I'm, I'm talking about in that example, or, you know, um, just, uh, interactions with our students or, whomever um that um it, it's not supposed to be like a a um a, a, any kind of cure-all per se mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. engaging in, in uh, some aesthetic practice as i say towards the end of uh, my introductory chapter that um um subjectivation becoming a a subject occurs from a thousand encounters mm-hmm. um there's a I, I make reference to the wizard of oz and there's this uh, sort of pulling back of the curtain of of power when we mm-hmm. engage in a ritual practice. We pull back the curtain on, hey, that's why I walk and talk and occupy space in this very characteristically you know, American or, mm-hmm. English, or whatever the case may be, in mm-hmm. this, a very masculine way or mm-hmm. uh, whatever the case. Uh, and um, that when we engage in some aesthetic practice, um, we can pull back a thousand tiny curtains in a thousand tiny contexts and maybe give us some burgeoning awareness of, um, of how we are, um, who we are, of those unconscious forces um, that, that are um, still nonetheless constitutive of, of our everyday presence. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um... Normally, at the end of an interview, I ask what you're working on now, but we did, a, I think, a pretty good yes. job of talking about uh, your, your book that you're working on now, Black Bodies That Matter. Uh, and so thank you for taking some time to talk to me about yeah. that, as well as reconsidering the life of power uh, out now, uh, 2021, I guess, uh, SUNY Press by James Garrison. So, James, thanks again for talking with you. Right. It was a pleasure. Pardon me, I get in one thirty-second mm-hmm. plug. I have another. Oh, book yeah, absolutely. Did. Another, okay. another one. I'm sorry, I yeah, didn't. I should have asked oh, again. You're fine. Um, it actually just appeared. It's from Rutledge. It's uh-huh. uh, political philosophy from an intercultural perspective. Oh, great. Uh, and uh, it's a, a collected volume. I'm a co-editor, and I have a contribution in there on the current situation in Hong Kong, uh, protests ah. and whatnot. So, uh, and and um, building on uh, an analysis of Confucianism. Gotcha. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that one as well. So, uh, James, thank you again for your time. Anything else before we sign off? No, I think I'm all out of book projects. Thanks. Oh, good. Okay. Well, uh, look forward to maybe talking with you uh, again in the future. Thanks so so much for your time. Uh, Thank you, Malcolm.